we're keeping uh, this all in. It's gonna be a really good episode, guys. Um, <laughs> we're professionals. <laughs> uh, Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am your co-host, Pete Romberg, and today I am uh, reeling from a movie that I just saw, which is going to be my stuck in my head, so I'm just going to sort of leave it there as a spoiler, or like a thing for you to pick up in like four minutes when I explain what it is. Um, Joining me, as always, is my co-host... Uh, Martha Sullivan, recently returned Librarian Conference Superstar. Ooh, you were in Nashville, right? Uh, Memphis. Memphis. Mm. The other city in Tennessee. Yeah, I'd never been there before. The food was really good. Nice. I didn't really get to see much of, like, the city. Um, I did go on a haunted pub tour, which was fun. Um... But mostly we got to learn about how a lot of people died from yellow fever in the 1800s, and Memphis may also be super cursed. That kind of checks out. Right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Well, joining us as a guest this week is return uh, guest and also someone who I went to Nashville with a year ago. That is true. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it was almost two years ago now. Oh, my god. Oh, that was two years ago now. Uh, You should introduce yourself, however. Okay, so hello. Um, I am Austin Morgat, returning to, I think this is my third or fourth time now, guesting on the show. This is very exciting. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. It's it's great to have you back. Yes, always fun. I enjoy it. So, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, Christianity in media. We've picked three very unique and strong, or like, strong in various ways depictions of this. We're going to be talking a lot about, like, crises of faith, um, possibly crypto-religion, hiding your faith, and religious tolerance. Uh, But before we get into that, we're going to talk about what is stuck in our head this week. That is whatever piece of pop culture is currently stuck in our head, whatever we are thinking of or just want to talk about. Austin, what is stuck in your head? So I am generally not one who watches a lot of television. Um, We do not have cable. I am definitely a millennial who only watches TV via internet subscription services. But I did discover via watching um, the Trevor Noah and Stephen Colbert shows of the world that um, Sean Spicer was on the Dancing with the Stars, and I don't understand that at all. And it just absolutely astonishes me in this very fascinating like I'm fascinated in a way that's not perhaps the best or like positive or good I just I don't I've I've been trying to find like how it happened and it just is so odd to me and and it's very bad and they should feel bad (laughs) and he was wearing lime green man yeah I I was seeing it I was seeing a thing recently that um all the judges of that show were like he's a terrible dancer and we keep trying to get rid of him but we can't get rid of him because he draws ratings so like you know everything is broken if you can't trust dancing with the stars who can you trust 
Um, also, if you're watching Dancing with the Stars because Sean Spicer is on it, I I feel like I have nothing to say to you. The, the, there's a lot of level of judgment happening right there, yeah. I just, I don't feel, I've never been drawn to Dancing with the Stars, but I just would like to know. I mean, like, I feel like I could be that person who watches Dancing with the Stars because Sean Spicer is on it. I just don't understand how... Austin, no! But, like, Austin, Austin, you be that person as, like, a hate watcher. (laughs) They don't know the difference, though. That's true. Uh, I will say, I've just, yeah, I... Anyways, I'm stuck. Like, I've thought about it a couple times this week, and I just, I don't get it. Uh, Well, Martha, what is stuck in your head this week? Castle Rock is back, baby! Um, I am now in a position to be watching three faux prestige TV shows all at one time, which is not a position that I enjoy being in because that's a lot of TV to catch up on. Shoot, I just realized Um, I'm going to be about to be watching two in a row, which sounds like a lot. So good on you for doing three. Um, what are your two? Uh, Watchmen and His Dark Materials, which I haven't seen the first episode of yet. That'll be on Tuesday. Fix yourself. I, I got um, a whole thing. It's yeah, fine. For me, for me, it's those two. And then also Castle Rock, which <laughs> is more in the faux prestige TV. Um, but also Lizzie Kaplan is so mm. good. Mm-hmm. Um, this new season is a riff on Misery. Lizzie Kaplan is playing Annie Wilkes. Mm. Um, and it is the majority of the action is set in Salem's Lot. So it's all a bunch of... Fantastic I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> you heard me. Is this pre-vampires, post-vampires, mid-vampires? Um, I mean, probably pre, but also who cares? I kind of love the idea of misery and then dude is hobbled and then also a vampire shows up. Like, that's kind of a fascinating. Casper kind of exists outside of Stephen King canon. Like... It's like a pastiche of mm. his stuff. So the like positioning this show against the actual Salem's Lot and Misery, I don't think is a useful exercise. Sure, um, it's more that it's a small town in Maine that happens to be called Apostrophe Salem's Lot. Well, it's more than that because we've just started getting into the Marston house and like... Mm how that is potentially evil and cursed and all of that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment we have Annie and her daughter who are, have been like traveling all over on the run. Annie is maybe wanted for murder. And at the moment they are um, settled in Salem's lot. Uh, Annie is working as a temporary RN Um Tim Robbins is there as some kind of like runs the town mobster guy. There's a whole real estate plot happening with a Somali mall. Um, it's it's all very. I've only watched two episodes and a lot. There's a lot mm. um, in them, but I'm excited that it's back. It is much more straightforward horror, I think, than the first season of Castle Rock, which I enjoyed but found very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And this is. This season so far is much more upfront, like soapy horror uh, drama. It's also funnier. Like it's had some, it's had some scenes that I think were definitely supposed to be played 
for laughs. Like, I'm not going to spoil anything um, because it's only been airing for a couple of weeks. Um, But Lizzie Kaplan does kill a guy in the first episode in a ridiculous manner that I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, That came out of nowhere and was like, oh, oh, this is very upsetting and also hilarious. Nice. Uh, I'm also very glad that this can be the 300th episode in a row where we're talking about Stephen King in some way. Uh, Listen. 2019, the year of Stephen King. He's embedded in my life. At some point I will go see Dr. Sleep, and then I'm sure I'll talk about that too. (laughs) I will hear about it from you because that is not not my not my element sure um well i am literally just coming uh you know a couple of hours ago out of the movie theater uh where i saw the movie parasite uh that is the uh bong joon hu uh it's described as a dark comedy thriller which sounds about right um it's it had reminiscences of us i feel like uh, Parasite and Us are kind of like kin movies. I'm not going to go so far as to say sibling, but like they're related to each other because uh, they oh. both came out in 2019 and they're both about class and they're both about um, people living underground in one way or another. Um, mm-hmm. uh, this is a, a South Korean director who also did Snowpiercer and uh, Oksha, um, the giant pig movie from uh, Netflix. Uh, yeah, okay. um, also did The Host. Um, this movie was really, really good. I'm going to be thinking about it for a while. I've already had like a two hour conversation about this. Um, and I would highly recommend it. It's not as it's class politics aren't worn on the sleeve in the same way that it was in Snowpiercer, but also in Snowpiercer, the rich were literally eating the poor. Um, so it's not quite that, but, um, it's about it's an upstairs downstairs story meets ocean 11 meets what if the downstairs people were like grifters but everyone is equally sympathetic or at least empathetic um so i i feel like this is it it, it won the the con palm d'or uh for this year um and was entirely deserved at no point in this movie did I correctly guess what was going to happen happen next in the movie, which I feel like is very strong praise for it. Um, Can so. I tell you my hesitation over seeing this movie? Yes. I hated Snowpiercer and the host. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's not graphic. It's not gory. It's tense. At no point do you, are you going to correctly guess what's going to come next? Um, that being said, if you don't like his stuff, you don't like his stuff. So like, I was going to say, I've, I've only heard good things about this movie and I'm sure it's great, but also I'm like the only one in the world that didn't like the host. And that just makes me sort of gun shy over it. Have you seen Okja? No, the premise of Okja sounded kind of off putting to me. I mean, we, we, I kind of like watched it. I don't want to say I don't need to be told that I don't need to be told that eating meat is evil sure right uh i i watched okja like on accident in the sense that it's like eh, scrolling through netflix no 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 yeah we'll watch the big pig movie that seems fun 
Um, so like we, we weren't seeking it out or anything. Uh, it was fine. It was fun. Um, I loved Snowpiercer. Um, I was going to say as like, if, is it similar enough in tone and or style to Snowpiercer or the host that if I didn't like those, I wouldn't like this movie. It's literally an upstairs downstairs drama in modern day South Korea. So it's definitely not like Snowpiercer. Um, well, Snowpiercer is an upstairs downstairs drama set on a train. On a train. In a right. It's, 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 world, it's a, so. it's a back of train, front of train <laughs> drama. <laughs> um, I, uh... Put a pin in that. We can talk about it later. Don't go see it I... in the theaters. Rent it. Like, watch it for free when it comes on streaming. I mean, if it gets nominated for Best Picture, like a lot of people think that it will, then I'll I'll, I'll definitely see it. All right. Well, uh, we're going to be talking about Christianity and religion uh, in media. Uh, stick with us after this break, and uh, we'll be right back. <laughs> So our topic today is kind of inspired by the fact that by the time this episode is released, uh, the first episode of His Dark Materials, um, the HBO adaptation of Philip Pullman's story of the same name, will have dropped. Um, I have watched it twice. Well, I have watched it zero times, but I am waiting breathlessly to watch it myself. Um, I give it a solid B+. Plus. Hmm, that's what most... But it uh, has a lot... It has so much work to do. That's fair. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of heavy lifting. Um, but a major component of his Dark Materials is the idea that in Lyra's world, there is the, uh, I'm already forgetting what it's called, the... The Magisterium. Magisterium, which is the big Catholic church organization controlling sort of Lyra's entire world. So uh, based on that, we kind of developed an idea of Christianity in media. More more than that, I mean, it's not just, it's not just that you have this giant church-like power that is the, um, like the ruling body in Lyra's world, but the books themselves are also about um, they're, they're about the power that faith has in this world and what happens when the people in power lose their faith. Yes, and, and also like um, creating new stories um, where necessary to like create a new like lowercase faith and, and, and such. Um, and I also would argue the difference between like individual faith and capital R organized religion. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, so because of all those ideas coalescing, like his dark materials is an excellent uh, book series and religion is a major component of it. It's also a retelling of Paradise Lost. Um, we uh, are sort of grappling here in a very small scale way with Christianity in media, and we're kind of focusing on like crises of faith um, and and sort of like crypto religion in various ways. Um, 
I'm going to uh, have you define that later. That's I fine. Think. That's fine. Um, but mostly what I'm getting into is that this is not a broad-scale discussion of religion in media. And I don't even think this is a broad-scale discussion of Christianity in media. This is very much a... We picked three definitely unique uh, homework assignments um, that are all tackling Christianity in media in very different ways. So, like, I'm very interested in the maelstrom uh, um, Venn diagram that these three media is great. So we're going to start with um, the movie Signs. So I believe, Martha, you assigned this one. Go ahead and uh, tell us about Signs. All right. So Signs is a movie that came out in 2002. Um, it was directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and it stars Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix, Rory Culkin, the lesser-known Culkin brother, um, and Abigail Breslin. Um, and it is about Mel Gibson, who was a Methodist. I also thought Methodist. Episcopalian. So he... Well, okay. Wikipedia is telling me Episcopalian priest. I'm um, a former who... Catholic, so that's not my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, so Mel Gibson plays a former Episcopal priest um, who loses his faith after his wife dies in a traffic accident. Um, and then, so he lives with his two children, played by Rory Culkin and Abigail Breslin, and his younger brother, played by Joaquin Phoenix, um, in a farmhouse out kind of in the middle of nowhere, middle America, um, and aliens start showing up. Uh, first we get crop circles and then actual aliens, uh, and the movie goes through, like, the process of this alien invasion that then gets um, interrupted and dispersed after a while. One of the aliens makes its way into Mel Gibson's house, and then a string of apparent coincidences kind of chain themselves together uh, and culminate in him and Meryl being able to uh, drive the alien away and save his family, which results in him regaining his faith and returning to the church. Um, This is my favorite Shyamalan movie. Really? I don't know that that is a popular opinion, uh, but it is one that I stand by. Um, And that's because I think this is one of the best, this is one of his best, um, or one of the best illustrations of him using genre film to tell a really personal story. Hmm. Uh, Because what it is about, like there are aliens and family problems and it's kind of an action sci-fi horror movie, but what it is about at its core is Mel Gibson rediscovering what it means to believe in God. And the first time that I saw this movie and I mean, I, the subsequent times I found that to be a very powerful story. Um, was this your, was this anybody's first time watching this movie? No. No, I saw it back, I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I would have seen it, like, very soon after it came on DVD. Um, I think it's the same for me. I did not see it in theaters, but I, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I watched. It's, it's been over 10 years since I've seen it, so, like, eh. um, all I could How did remember- you guys, how did you guys feel about me assigning it? Because I know that my feelings about it are not the popular opinion i know this is not one of his more beloved films 
I think for me, when you said that you wanted to assign signs going into it, and usually when we do homework assignments, for, for me as a guest, I try not to do a lot of research on things ahead of time. I try to mm. go in empty to to be able to at least get a good impression. And so for me, well, I've good on you. several years <laughs> back, um, well, yeah, that helps. Um, several years back, I was just kind of like, oh, that was the alien movie with the corn. And and like and I remembered Mel Gibson, so that you know going into it that that's what I had, and then you know on the other end as you know an adult now with a with a particular lens for the theme of this podcast to look at the movie from I think was very different. So yeah, I I am sorry that Mel Gibson is in this movie. <laughs> He's a bit of a sour note. The problem at is, the he's really good in this movie, but I don't want to like him. I'm like, uh, he's doing a good job in this role. Yeah, this was back when he was, you know. I mean, he was still probably a raging anti Semite, but like, was he wasn't say, out he was, about he it. Still a, yeah, he was still a racist. We just didn't know it yet. Yeah, yeah. Um,. No, like like much like Austin, I I went into this. My memory of Signs was not positive because it doesn't have a very strong positive pop culture, um, I guess, phalanx. Uh, it's that movie where it's like the aliens are weak to water and they invaded the water planet and wasn't that dumb. Um, but watching this again, I was struck by how well crafted it was it there was a lot of Chekhov's guns that didn't feel like Chekhov's guns which I always appreciate like things that that are important later in the movie were set up very well without feeling like they were being forced in the first half um and also I I would not have thought of this as a religion movie until you assigned it so I was looking at it with that lens and obviously uh, uh, Mel Gibson's character dealing with this crisis of faith is a big part of this movie, but I probably would not. I would have like backgrounded that if you didn't assign it for this. In which case, I foregrounded it, and I think that did a good service to the movie. I think that it's very important. That's like a key cornerstone of the film. Um, and then well, the la- and that like that point of view is wild to me because that's all I think about when I watch this movie. Right, whereas, like, like the first time I saw it, and even, like, like if I if, if you had not assigned this and I was just going to watch it randomly, I'd be like, oh, it's an alien invasion movie, not like, oh, it's a Crisis of Faith movie. Um, but my third take was this is very clearly shot on film, and it looks like it. It looks gorgeous. It is some crazy cinematography. It, it looks very much like a 50s movie in a way. Um, and I kind of miss movies that are like obviously shot on film and look like it and like every and it's set on location like it's shot on location there are physical props in the room and all the rest of it um this movie is also almost 20 years old which is insane yes um it also like it is very much for me a movie primarily about um one man's crisis and return to faith but it also has two of the most effective horror movie scenes i think in almost any horror movie because the sequence where Joaquin Phoenix is watching the news report with the bit of home video. Oh yeah. Um, I I knew what was going to happen and I jumped when the alien appeared on screen. 
Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. And then there's the moment where they have one trapped in the closet and Mel Gibson is using the knife to like mm-hmm. look for the reflection of the alien and then the claw snakes out. Yeah. I I I know it's coming and I still like make sounds every single time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That Brazilian birthday thing was <laughs> children. Yeah. Move children. Vamanos. But what did we think about um you know, talking about it specifically through the lens of um, watching a character's relationship and struggle with faith. Like, how do we think? How do we think Shyamalan did with Mel Gibson's character? I felt that of the three humans, that his crisis of faith was the most personal. Um, and and Pete and I talked about this a little bit before we got started in terms of. Um, I I guess my personal reflections on the other two, but for me, I didn't think that the other two homework assignments had the, the same themes of crisis of faith, the same way as this one did. For me, the other two had more in common and this one was a little set was, was set more apart, I think. Um, And I, I got that primarily because for me, I like I went into this thinking like, oh, this is the alien movie. But then in watching this and seeing like this family was put through so much that challenged them and they you know, they lost the the mother and you you see the influence of um who she was to the family and what she meant and what her loss meant and how it caused this rift in their religion, which was, you know, prior to her loss, such a huge and important part of their lives. And then for them to undergo this incredible, you know, out of this world, literally, obstacle to be able to gain that back, I think speaks a lot to what people have to go through in in the real world to to undergo a crisis of faith and and how they get through that and then what they need to go through again to be able to find their way back. Hmm. It's it's interesting to me to hear you talk about how you were more easily able to draw lines between um, our next two homework assignments because I found the crisis of faith in silence to be much more similar to this one. Whereas I almost felt like, and I'll save most of this for when we actually get to it, but I felt like the the crisis that we're talking about in um, the Da Vinci Code is almost more of an institutional crisis of faith, whereas yeah. silence and signs are both very personal. Yeah. Uh... And, and, and Martha, I had the same take, which is why we're going to have silence as the middle homework. Um, Austin, hearing you say all that, I... One thing I was struck by is the idea that um, I feel like in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, Signs would have had a scene where Mel Gibson is literally talking to his wife pinned to a tree. Um, and luckily, I, I, I think for, for the better, Signs doesn't have that. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Pause for correction. No. Cool. Because no. um, he talks about how his wife is like, pinned to a tree and like 
dying and, and it's horrible and everything. Um, but he, there's no scene where that happens, so it's all kind of off screen, which I think well, works we, very we well. Do, we do get a scene of like a flashback of her being pinned to the tree saying, swing away, Meryl. So, like, we do get to see her mm. being but the, but, into that tree. But all she says is that. It's not the whole, like, discussion, right? True. Yeah. So, like, like I, I feel like a lesser film would have done the entire discussion with that. Um, whereas this is just that. Because, like, because that line is important for, like, you know, killing the aliens, all the rest, whatever. Um, I I felt this was, it was, it was deeply personal and, like, Deeply personal in a way that I don't... I can't think of any other movie that has a story like this. Where, like, I mean... Alien invasion, whatever nonsense aside. Like... It, it, it's a, a minister grappling with his faith... Who ends up eventually coming back. And, like, I think... I honestly think the miracle bit is a little bit hackneyed. I'm not entirely sure if I buy his return to faith... But I totally buy his rejection of it, and um, and and then like within everything else, it it all works out okay. Um, well, I mean, the movie is like the central thesis of the movie is him returning to right, his and also faith. Like, like I don't alien I don't alien invasion is a good way to make anyone come back to their faith, so like that's fine. Um, well, I just don't think that this particular movie was ever going to end any other way. No, I understand that. It's it's like every actor did an excellent job. The script is generally fine. The specifics you could say, say you didn't like this movie. Pete. No, it's no. Okay. Here's the thing: like, I, it's not that I didn't like it. I was fascinated by it. It the beats that it wanted me to love didn't click with me in ways that they needed to to make it like sing. But I got what it was trying to do. You know what I mean? Like, I I understood it, but I disagreed with it. If that makes sense. I, I, I would like you to clarify. I understood intellectually that, like, his son having asthma and then his lungs being closed as the alien poured gas in it and stuff. And then, um... Uh, that saved him led Mel Gibson to think it was a miracle and like fix his crisis of faith it just didn't click with me correctly because I was like well that's a little hacky um, I think I I think I would posit that that's almost the point because right. like there's a world in which Mel Gibson looks at all of these things and does not connect them and does not like it, it he needs that element of of faith faith which is yeah, which is back. which is why i'm saying like i you... i totally get it but it didn't click with me so it's not like i'm appreciating what it's doing i'm understanding what it's doing but it's not singing for me in the way that it's supposed to um but that's entirely because like that that's me versus like what the movie is doing I, I guess I would argue that that is still a valid way to read the movie because I think ultimately at the end, Mel Gibson's character would tell you that it doesn't matter whether or not you personally 
are able to find the faith in these circumstances. Right. So like, but I, he did, I don't know. So. That right. I don't know that you are missing anything from the movie to not be able to go on that journey with him. Cause the point is that he does. And I think all that matters is that you are able to see for him what is happening. I would guess that Shyamalan wants me as an audience member to go on that journey, and I can follow that journey on paper, but not, like, in my heart. Um, can I ask you a personal question, Pete? Hell yeah. Are you an atheist? No, I'm a uh, Hickeyan pantheist. <laughs> Every Everything is God, but some and, and all religions are generally right, but some religions are more right than others. Because I, I sort of wonder if your willingness to go or not go with Mel Gibson's character on no, this. No, no, no. So, so like, I mean, right. So, like, I'm, I'm putting all my cards on the table. I'm like, I'm a religion minor. I studied it in school. I'm very interested in religion. I'm deeply interested in structures of religion uh, from like an academic point of view. Um, like, my favorite part of Game of Thrones is the High Sparrow and the Faith because that's fascinating to me. Um, but, and, and I also like, like personal connections to the divine, but I myself am. You don't necessarily believe in miracles. Correct. And I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be accusatory or like. No, 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 totally. And, and like, this is why, like, okay. this is why I wanted to make sure that you were on the podcast because I think that you, you generally, Martha, do a good job at like ensuring that we're all like being, uh, on the level and also like respectful of everyone and everything so shall we move on to silence at this yeah point? um awesome was there anything else you wanted to weigh in on for signs um i feel like the two of you hashed out pretty well there towards the end <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> i was just like let me let me sit back and and listen and listen i mean didn't mean to cut you out there. Heck, is this a good uh, all cards on the table? Like, what what are the various uh, backgrounds of faith that we're all coming from? Like, I am a, like, former Catholic sounds, like, bad. Recovering Catholic sounds bad. I was raised a Catholic, but I don't consider myself that right now. Um, um, I was raised predominantly Unitarian. Um, I currently am not part of a church-going community, but that's because I find... Um, the idea of needing to like pay dues and go to a class just so I can go to church regularly to be kind of repugnant. Um, but I would still, I would call myself a non-practicing um, person of faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I am a. Um... I was raised Lutheran. Um, the majority of my family outside of my immediate parents are all Catholic on every side. So I have a lot of exposure to Catholicism. Um, and it was very influential in my, in my social life, I guess, leading up to college and then it kind of I don't know it kind of drifted away due to some personal crises I guess that my family had to go through um, which is interesting actually this is our our theme Um, and so for me it's kind of 
been the but now if if we were to sit down and have like a truly deep discussion my my beliefs are there but my confidence in the structures and the connections is not so all of us are generally pro the idea of the divine not so on board with the idea of organized religion <laughs> yeah or negotiating what organized right. religion might look like to right. us right yeah. exactly um anyway speaking of the catholic church i assign the movie silence uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh this is a 2016 martin scorsese movie um as of this recording, it is his most recent movie, but within days, The Irishman is going to come out, which will supplant this. Um, this is Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, Liam Neeson, and Kieran Hines. Uh, they're all Portuguese Jesuit priests, many of whom are going to Japan during a time when Christianity, specifically Catholicism, was illegal. Um it deals with uh, Adam Garfield and Adam Driver trying to find Liam Neeson, uh, a uh, missionary who uh, they uh, fear might have apostatized or rejected the faith, um, and sort of their their um, trials and tribunals while in Japan. Um, I had a lot of thoughts uh, while seeing this movie. I uh, sort of had not seen it when I assigned it. And I'm very glad I assigned it. I assigned it to ensure that I saw it, and I loved it. Um, but also recognized it was very difficult to watch, and also a lot of the thoughts as I was watching it were based on my religious studies minor, um, some of which might be released in a bonus episode coming out at some point, because I was talking uh, about them with Austin on a recorded call. So um, I guess before we delve into it in too much detail, what did you guys think of this movie? I hated this movie. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> I hated everything about this movie. <laughs> no, okay. this movie. This movie was an encapsulation of everything I hate about organized religion. Mm. We're going to come into your country. We're going to show you how to do something. We're going to act like we're the prosecuted ones when you're like established organization gets mad at us for being here mm -hmm. and then we're gonna act like oh shoot now you're all being killed because of something we did oops oh shoot Our bad. Is, like, is missionizing as bad as colonization probably yes i think missionizing is terrible maybe general, worse but... yeah like it's like that that freaking dude who like got killed recently because he was like trying to missionize like an isolated tribe and they're like yo don't missionize us. And he's like, I'll swim to your island. He's like, if you do, we'll kill you. He's like, no, it's fine. Every then, person who dies in this him. movie dies as the direct result of a white man deciding that he knows better than a person of color how to live their lives. Um, so I, I found a lot of the filmmaking aspects of this movie very off-putting, but I think that was on purpose, so I'm not going to dock any points for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I had a lot of trouble sympathizing with our main characters. I really did. I think, um, for me, this, my first impression of this film, I did not really know what to expect besides what we briefly discussed in the email chain, um, when we picked these assignments. Um, and so going into this, I was like, oh my God, this is extremely violent. I was not ready. And I, um, 
I, I definitely needed to uh, take time when the film was done to process the intensity of um, the content and the 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 torture that mm-hmm. a lot of the people went through that we had to take in um, in terms of the the visual aspects as well as just listening um, to everyone being tortured. Um, it was a lot. Yeah, there there was a lot of torturing in this movie. I'll definitely put that out there. Was not was not ready for that. Um, but I think for me also. I, and I, again, I had to check with Pete originally before we started our conversation for this podcast. Um, I kind of took it as more of the, um, like, religious context aside, the the Japanese had just closed their borders to the Western countries when this movie was, um, like, when this film was set. Um, and so for me, it was, it was difficult to look at what they were doing to the people who were converting or attempting to convert or, um, attempting to repudiate conversion. Um, but for me, I was kind of looking at an observer watching them try to get rid of external cultures that they felt were corrupting the the purity and integrity of the Japanese life at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering originally, like if this happened before the borders closed and then Pete said that this happened like just about after the borders closed. Um, and so I think maybe it's a different take on the colonialism, but I, I have to wonder if, you know, in, in line with the uh, white man savior complex, if if you come in and your the customs and the beliefs that you're bringing in are not so directly in contrast and in offense to the customs that have sustained a country for, you know, over a thousand years, um, May I don't I don't know if it would have been different probably not but for me that I was kind of looking at that as like oh you have all these people coming in and Japan is already in this place where they don't like outsiders because of what's happening in their country and of course they're gonna try to get rid of you. Yeah, I I totally get the <laughs> both of your lines of argument of like, wait these people are trying to do a thing that no one else in the country wants them to do? Uh, well, then they should obviously be thrown in jail. Um, well, okay. I mean, so, so I'm, I'm being... <laughs> Without excusing the things that the Japanese officials do, because, sure, sure. you know, this is a very cool mode of still murder situation. Freedom of religion is important, um, but also uh, stop proselytizing when we don't want you to proselytize. Also, yeah, like, freedom of religion is a very, I think, modern concept. I don't know. It is 100% a modern concept. It's a liberal concept (laughs) that developed in the 1700s. This is before the 1700s. So, you know, everyone gets excused on that front. Like, I don't want it to sound like I'm totally cool with the way that the Japanese reacted to the Catholics being there, but also they knew in, like, 
they they were aware, and by they I mean um, Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, yes. were aware in some capacity that their presence in Japan would be an issue. Yes, totally. Um, and I, they went anyway. I, I want to kind of sidestep that a little bit to focus more on the character of uh, Kichijiro, uh, Kichijiro, who was... He was their guide to Japan and shows up throughout the movie as a perpetual penitent, I think I'm going to call him. Um, he... Kichijiro also sucks. Kichijiro, I just there, want to put that out there. <laughs> so, like, so he, um, he, uh, his, his family was uh, burned by the Japanese for being uh, Christians, but he avoided that fate by uh, apostatizing. Uh, and then he ha- apostatizes like five times in the movie and perpetually is asking for confession and then asking for and then like betraying and then confession and betraying. And that is both a very Catholic thing. Like the idea of like of confession is obviously inherently a very Catholic thing. Um, but his his perpetual sea song was a very interesting thing. And I'm very I'm kind of intrigued at how big of a part in the movie it played i could i could have seen it being like a one or two thing but it it kind of like kept going and i almost feel like it was scorsese questioning whether the idea of um uh like like questioning no matter what you do you can still be forgiven how how far we're willing to stretch this and andrew garfield stretches it like all the way because he 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 still forgives uh kichijiro uh you know to the very end because every time he asks for confession he still gives it to him um, so I don't know if you guys had that same resonance as the only Catholic in the, in the group, uh, whether that had the same meaning for you guys, um, or if you were just deeply, I was, I mean, I was deeply frustrated with him, but I also kind of grokked where he was coming from. I was deeply frustrated with Andrew Garfield. Like, mm. dude, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me kind of deal. And like, I get I get that it's his job as a priest to grant absolution and like to believe in the intentions like the good intentions of somebody but at a certain point I got I got frustrated with him it's like how many times does this guy have to roll you in the mud before you realize that he's taking advantage of your policies I was a little sad there was no like you know penance that he had to do Say a few Hail Marys at least, and then uh, then you're fine. Uh, anyway, Austin, how about you? Um, I think that's kind of an interesting take for me. I felt like, given the the context of the times, that the 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 depth of reflection by Garfield's character, I don't know would show up the same way I think it was a I mean life and death was much closer Mm. to each other back then but I think also that in terms of being a Catholic priest like this was you know like your job is to go and get people and bring them to Jesus and keep them with Jesus in in the way that the Catholic Church expects no matter what and so to 
to be like, oh, well, you know, this and this is what we went through. And, you know, it was all in the eyes of God. And, like, now he's going to come back and, and we'll keep him with the rest of the flock that, you know, we're trying to find here yeah. in Japan. And um, I guess for me, I, I, I thought they were trying to keep him as close to Catholicism as possible given what he went through and I think also that he as you experience him as a character I I mean I didn't love this movie anyway so I guess I wasn't <laughs> emotionally upset about it um, either way in this movie I was like oh, okay but for me I, I felt seeing him already in the beginning I felt like he was a little weird and then I think that they revealed the damage that his character has gone through um, throughout the film as you find out what happened to him and what happened you're, to and, and you're, you're, you're talking about uh, Kichijiro and I yes yeah. I'm sorry and I, I felt that the priests that were involved with him like when you when you take into account that they are doing what they can to try to preserve the Catholic belief that is left in mm. context of everything that's going on and looking at uh, Kuchijiro as a as a man whose you know, faith has been damaged trying to bring him back no matter what, is the whole point of them being there. I mean, besides saving their friends, but... Um, he, he, he's kind of the constant, like, trying but failing to live up to what he should be doing. I think, so, I think they wanted him to be a little more complex of a character um, and maybe more complex of a conversation starter. I don't know if that succeeded all the way mm. um i didn't think that he was mostly black or white i kind of felt like there was a lot more that they wanted at least the, the directors and the, the writers of the film wanted him to have more depth sure. so i ultimately found this movie to be a very um cynical view of religion um of organized religion and like sticking to one's faith beyond reason and i'm wondering if um either of you had any opinions on the way that scorsese might feel or was trying to portray um the organized church because this movie felt very much to me like scorsese saying look at the harm that comes from sticking Interesting. To your yeah, from sticking to your guns on this point, because I think a lot of what happens to Andrew Garfield's character happens because he. So. <laughs> so this is this is Scorsese's quote unquote third religious movie. His first being The Passion of the Christ, and the second being um, uh, Kundun. Um, I, I I would agree with you if not for the very last scene which is where an 
elderly Andrew Garfield dies of old age and is um, cremated in a Buddhist ceremony, but we close in in the very last moment to what's in his hand, and it is the cross that was carved to him by the villagers when he first came to the country, uh, sort of revealing that he never truly lost his faith. He merely, like, buried it. Um, and I think that that... It might... I don't know. Like, it's... like organized religion versus faith in general are sort of like weirdly intertwined in this movie um because like he's a you know he's a he's a jesuit and those two things are inherently intertwined um but i almost feel like it's uh it's i i don't think it's a, a, a rejection of organized religion um this is how this is how I read that last scene because I I actually think that this is going to make a big difference in how you and I viewed the movie as a whole. Okay. Um so Andrew Garfield even after everything all of his trials and tribulations he is still clinging to that last shred of his faith even though he has outwardly apostatized. Right. He is still cremated and buried without a Christian burial or burial rites. Like even at the end of his life, he does not get the dignity of the death um, True, but burial that his, but in his condition, so like in, is, in, he, in uh, his situation, there was no he, way he was going to get that. Exactly. So, so he, he, is did, he did the best to, way he, is, he could. He is clinging to a faith that ultimately gives him nothing. No, he, mm. no, I, I, View that entirely the opposite way. He is, even though he has gotten nothing from it, he is still clinging to his faith. This is what I mean. I think that the way we read that. <laughs> this, this is why I loved this movie changes. and why you hated this movie. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I, I read that last scene as, you know, he's abandoned in a strange country without his faith and without the comfort of a Christian burial. And he's never given up. Awesome. Go ahead. <laughs> you're you're trying to jump in. <laughs> no. Um, I feel like he... I guess I feel like he never truly apostatized his faith. I felt that he was put on trial and his... His... I don't know if humanity is the right word, um, but I, I feel that he was tested because of his faith but he I, I i i guess my disconnect with this film and zion with and zion's excuse me was that um in zion's mel gibson's character goes through these huge personal trials that challenge what he believes in and the core of why he believes what he believes and everything that has built him to be who he is mm. in his faith before it all breaks and I don't feel that any of the men who are from Portugal, at least, go through those same kinds of trials in silence. I feel that they are tortured and they are required to listen to people being tortured and they watch their fellow priests and like men who are their comrades and friends and travel partners um are 
tested in front of them, but it doesn't challenge the heart of what they believe in and why they believe it like to the same extent. It's less personal. And I don't, I guess for me, I did not feel that it challenged their faith as much as it challenged their, um, their, and maybe these are more 21st century values, but like, pride and flexibility mm. and willingness to oh and maybe it's pride the willingness to say what you need to say to save a life as opposed to oh i'm gonna stick to my guns no matter who dies in front of me um and i don't feel that historically it challenged their faith or was enough cause them to repudiate it because it was coming from an external source and then so at the end for him to die holding a cross I felt was another indicator of the fact that like he really went through some stuff but nothing ever challenged him as a man in his faith and therefore I don't believe that he had enough to really lose it that's really fascinating and the, the polar opposite for me um speaking of people with 21st century ideas of faith um austin you assigned the book the da vinci code um i assigned the da vinci code because i feel that it is something within pop culture that a lot of listeners would have been very familiar with to at least be able to grow to draw some some connections to. Um, I think perhaps people who listen are more familiar with the film than I am. I don't watch as many movies as I used to. Um, and so participating in this is always good for me to kind of go back into something that I used to spend more time with. Um, and so for me, choosing the Da Vinci Code was kind of going back into the, oh goodness, the early 2000s to... <laughs> um, like remember when the the hype kind of happened um and so i will i will concede i did not fully read the book from start to finish but i did um flip through and review the parts that i felt had the strongest sections on religion um and and things that i felt were meaningful and so um i guess the the brief summary of this um would be that Robert Langdon is a, um, what, what is his job? He's a cryptographer. He's a symbol analysis. Yeah, cryptographer is probably right. Is that what it is? Cryptologist. Yeah. He codes. Yeah. He's a symbologist, which is a made-up job. <laughs> a job title. Um, for a fancy East Coast university, and he is in Paris for something. And um, one of the curators at the Louvre is murdered and his body is left in a very suggestive and symbolic manner, um, echoing um, Leonardo da Vinci's The Vitruvian Man. And so he is brought in by the French police to look at the crime scene and take notes and interpret as possible because one of the police officers is also familiar with symbology, I suppose if that's the word we're using. And so from there, all of these developments accrue as they look at 
what da Vinci did and how it connects to um, the the greater Renaissance men within the Catholic Church and the the theory that Jesus Christ had a physical relationship, if not an actual legal marriage with Mary Magdalene, and that they had children, um, and what that would mean for the Catholic Church and for the representation of women in the Catholic Church throughout history. Um, and of course, there is a bad guy in the shadows who is directed by someone more evil than him, and there's a beautiful woman who's involved with everything and is a key to finding the answers at the end of the story and it's very fast paced it's very well if you, if you are not a person who studies history truly because it did get very bad reviews for this um, the history <laughs> into it um, if you are not familiar with the, the background of these these ideas and the, the history of the Catholic Church and the history of um, Christianity and the arguments around how it has been interpreted from the original texts over the years. Um, the the book itself is fascinating and is an excellent story. Um, one of my favorite criticisms of the Da Vinci Code and the books that followed it are that people took the fiction to be real, which I enjoyed. Yeah, um, I my understanding is that both real historians and um like religious studies people uh joined together to flip the table when this book came out because they're like none of this is what it actually is but it's a it's a good like you know romp i thought it was a great story i didn't make me think that i, I mean for me if a book you is you don't think the sangreal is the sacred bloodline I mean, it's cool, but if the library says that it's in the fiction section, like the fiction section <laughs> here, and then there's generally a big open space with computers, and then the nonfiction section is over there. Right, and... right. So. so I I have spoken incredibly derisively about this book in the past. Um, so I I found reading it again to be a really interesting experience because the second time around kind of knowing what the like structure was and what was going on mm -hmm. um, and just getting over the fact that every chapter is two pages long and ends on a cliffhanger. It's an, air um, it's an airplane book. That's what you do. <laughs> no, I actually was impressed by how subversive this book is. Mm -hmm. um, it is an incre it's not an elegant takedown of the Catholic church, but it's a very forward one. Um, and I, I think that at its core, it is indicting the Catholic Church for how they've treated women mm -hmm. forever, which is a really interesting idea to address in like a popcorn book that is meant to be very easily consumable. Um, I thought that some of the ideas in this book eclipse the writing level and perhaps audience level of the book in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I am currently finding it hard to be mad at a book that makes those ideas so easily consumable and accessible to such a wide audience. I have uh, very strong memories of reading this book for the first time um, in Michigan when I was maybe whenever this book came out. I was probably in high school, maybe very baby college. Um, 
And I, I remember it as, as a good page turner um, and also thinking at the time pre-wiki that like some of these ideas seem weird. Uh, in a post-wiki world, I'm like, oh, let me wiki every single term that comes up. Well, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Um, but that being said, uh, I agree with you, Martha, 100% that like it's shocking to me that this was the biggest airplane novel of all time when it came out in 2002. The only book that sold better the year this came out was Harry Potter Order of the Phoenix, which, like, seeing as Harry Potter sells better than the Bible, that checks out. Um, uh, so, yeah, like, I, I enjoy the fact that it's both very pop, but also very subversive and very, like, like faux intellectual or real intellectual. You still are grappling with, like, important and big ideas, um, yes. and I, I think that's an important part of this. Um, cause this also, I mean, the book also gets into the, um, the position that like fine art and religion had to each other and like, right. that's a graduate thesis all on its own. Right. Totally. Uh, <laughs> my, my only critique, which is a dumb like, it's not my only critique. A dumb critique I that I had, say. well, like, I, there are many critiques. One specific one that I'm going to flag here, which I am going to also acknowledge is dumb, is that I feel like it's a poor man's cryptonomicon because they both deal with cryptography, but one is Neil Stevenson's 500-page dissertation on cryptography buried in a 1,000-page book, and this is, like, Dan Brown doing, like, hey, I'm, here's a cryptex. Cool. Cryptography. Um, but that's a dumb critique and I recognize it as such. It was just a thought I had as I was reading it again. The only Neil Stevenson I've ever read is Snow Crash, so I can't help you on that one. Cool. Uh, I've got a, a thesis dissertation worth of opinion on his most recent book, but that's not for this episode. <laughs> um, so I am. I am very interested to hear from Austin about how she related this one to silence um i feel uh, for me i guess was still sorry i didn't mean to put you on the spot <laughs> no, <laughs> just... no, i think for me this was more you know and maybe maybe in working through our conversations now and listening to the two of you maybe not as strongly as I did at the beginning of the podcast um but so for me uh prior to starting um our conversations this evening I felt that the the main characters in this story who have the largest crisis of faith I think are um and not to give too many things away, I suppose. For spo spo spoil away, they should have done the homework. Movie or movie or booked at this point. Um, Maybe you're going to you say know, Silas, played by Paul Bettany. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I believe that they... So for Sophie, I... I didn't feel that she truly had a crisis of faith in the same way that the Mel Gibson's character. I do not remember his name in the movie. I'm so sorry. I, um, I think his name is Mel Gibson. Father Mel Gibson. Oh my it's God. not, but it doesn't <laughs> <end>. <laughs> So I don't, I don't feel that 
I guess out of all of the characters, I felt that his crisis of faith was the deepest and the most personal. I don't feel mm. that Sophie really had to go through anything besides watching her grandpa get laid by accident in a basement. <laughs> and, and, like, I'm sorry that was weird for you. It would be really weird for anyone. <laughs> like, you know, but that, that's nothing to... Like so, Sophie, we've, you're and, you're a French. And, we've all seen eyes wide shut. It's fine. Well, but this and this is and I just I don't feel that Sophie really went through anything to make her have a crisis of faith the same way that Father Gibson did. Lol. Yes. And don't and and I guess I think maybe signs is a little more comparable just in listening to the two of you talk about it. Um, but I, I just, I don't feel that she had anything that truly challenged her and made her feel that she had lost something, um, just by watching her grandfather participate in this religious ceremony. She didn't even understand what it was until after he had been murdered and they were on the run trying to solve this enormous mystery that she you know, could barely grasp the implications of until it was over. Um, and she, I, I just don't feel like she lost anything to truly give her a strong connection to silence. I, I just don't, there, there was nothing that she had to undergo. I, I just, I don't, I, I just don't see it. I didn't get that connection. Um, I, I, then... I agree with you 100%. Um, so this is how I think that this book fits within the context of our episode. Um, Silence and Signs are both about incredibly personal um, crises of faith. Mm -hmm. Austin, I agree with you 100%. Um, I came at this book not so much looking at how Sophie kind of fits into our conversation, but how the Catholic Church as a whole fits into our conversation mm. like this book strikes me as the catholic church trying very very hard to avoid or cover up a crisis of faith that it doesn't want to have like it does not want to grapple with what it would mean for jesus to have had mortal concerns like marriage and a family so this book is kind of about the institution avoiding that like avoiding having to grapple with what that would mean for its like tenets of faith. Well, and I think that's really the only interpretation that can make sense because Silas is the only other character that really struggles with his faith. And I, I agree in that, in that sense that he doesn't struggle with his interpretation of his personal faith. He struggles with his interpretation of what the Catholic Church would mean to him if everything came out. And he doesn't even know what it is that he's fighting to truly prevent because he's yeah. being directed by um, Opus Dei. British guy with the lemon tea in the shadows the whole time. And so he... I, I feel... I, I guess I agree wholeheartedly that it's, it's about the institution and what it represents and what it would lose but I think it's still it's it's 
it's a theoretical loss because they don't ever allow anything to happen for that faith to be challenged in the first place. And so... Well, so... So I'm, I'm going to go on a totally different tangent. So Martha, you, you go ahead. I was going to say, can I ask a question before you do that? Do we see any thematic similarities between that fear and attempt to stave off a crisis of faith um, and the, like the un, so in silence when Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver go to look for Father Ferrari, they don't know what has happened, but they are afraid of what has happened. Is this anything? Like, is there is there maybe a thematic connection there between just like the cat, like the Catholic Church as a whole, having a fear without knowledge that something might be disrupting their patterns of faith? Because hmm. those seem to be similar ideas to me, but I also may just be making stuff up i think i i understand where you're going with it i just don't know if it quite clicks to me i think the the i think the the central idea is it's fairly similar but the i i mean you're essentially challenging the vatican and everything um like the historical importance and the complexity and the richness of wealth and history and influence and art and culture and everything that Catholicism has meant in Western civilization versus um, what it means to be a missionary and and I guess I see the connection but I I don't perhaps see it as strongly as you do. Fair. So For I, me, I think it's a similar thread, but in very different worlds. I'd, I'd almost take it the opposite direction, where um, signs and silence are about individuals grappling with like a personal crisis of faith one way or the other. And this is about... Not the institution writ large, but a branch of the institution, like this is like Opus Dei, knowing that something is not true, or, or like, like, like I, I, I feel like in this, it's not that it's, they are grappling with the problem that like Jesus might have, uh, you know, dealt with worldly concerns such as getting married and stuff but that they recognize that that's true and that that would destroy the church. So they will do everything they can to bury that information and make sure it never sees the light of day. Um, which is, by the way, buck wild to me. Right, right. Which, which is also very different than in both signs and silence. We have men of faith and they are, uh, uh, spoiler, uh, in all these books, they're all men of faith. Uh, but like true white yes, men, specifically. white men, yes, definitely white men. Um, uh, grappling with their own personal relationship with God and with um, even within institutions, like Andrew Garfield is definitely like within the institution of like he's a Jesuit priest, so he is a hardcore Catholic. Uh, with the Pope says black is white, then black is white. That's what the Jesuits thought back then. Um, but, like, even within that institution, he's still, like, an individual grappling with his individual faith. This is a 
institutional attempt to bury the truth because it conflicts with the story that they want to present, um, which is kind of the inverse of the other two movies in a way. I say other two movies, I mean two movies and then this is a book slash movie, but still. Final thoughts? Christianity, Uh, it done some good stuff, also some bad stuff. Good stuff and bad stuff. I would also say I think that the conclusion of this was um, that it created some harder questions um, and conversations than I originally anticipated. So that was very interesting. Um, Austin, I definitely would like to have you on for a round two of uh, religion and or Christianity in media. Um, Because I could talk about this for literally ever. And yeah, I I feel like this is a this is a conversation pause without a, a conclusion. But then we need to do a part three where we do other religions in media because I creeped on your Goodreads and I saw that we both read Kingdom of Brass. No, 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 no. I haven't read it. I've only put it on as my want to read. It's my want to read. I saw that you read it and all the sequels and I'm jealous. Oh my God, it's so good. Okay, well, we'll do, maybe that'll be part four at that end. Great. I definitely, I definitely think that Western media interpreting non-western religions Ooh. is a i've got a is, four episodes worth of content on this one so. yes. <laughs> which was of course why we felt the need to limit ourselves on this episode so deeply yes um if we're gonna try and stick to an hour ish we're running long i'm sure but 100%. an hour ish worth yes. of discussion there was no way we were gonna be able to cover fairly like um, all religions in media. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a bold premise. <laughs> um, Austin, anything else you want to say about? I I know we kind of gave short shrift to uh, um, Da Vinci Code. That's for no actual like fault of our own, or because we don't want to keep talking about it forever. Uh, only because we're looking at the clock. Um, so anything else you want to get out before we uh, start wrapping up? I don't think i have any serious conclusions i would say that i think it's uh the the conversations in our podcast and then i'm sure reflections that people have listening show that christianity has been around for a very long time and it's not going anywhere and it's a huge part of what has shaped our past and it is a perhaps less visual shaper of our future but it is still there nonetheless and it's interesting to see how it pops up time and time again as a human experiment experience excuse me that we all go through so very well said i think that's an excellent note to end on i agree well Thank you, everyone, for joining in and listening to this uh, podcast. Uh, thank you for sticking with us through some uh, definite uh, uh, in-depth <laughs> religion talk. Um, Austin, is there anywhere you want people to find you on social media? Um, if you would like to 
see pictures of my dog, you can find me on Instagram at Austin Renee, A-U-S-T-I-N-R-E-N-E. Um, Happy first adoption day to Lucy. Yes, it's been one whole year since we had Lucy. She is currently passed out on the floor because she's in bed. Aww. She's just pretty great. Um, aside from that, I social media and I broke up in 
Uh, Marin, friend of the show and sometimes guest on this, and I go through the wide, wide world of streaming teenage rom-coms. Our last episode was on 16 Candles. Our next episode, we are watching the... Hopefully, we'll have dropped on Netflix by tomorrow when it was supposed to so that we can actually record our episode. Uh, Let It Snow, just in time for the holidays. Um, What's the name of that show? Uh, That show is called Love Ya, which would indeed be useful information for our listeners to have. Heck yeah. (laughs) Um, Next episode, we're going to be talking about immigrants and refugees, starring uh, return guest of the show, Caitlin Flynn. Um... Uh, Martha, what are you assigning? Uh, I'm assigning the 2018 YA novel Internment oh, by Samira new. Ahmed. What? It's that new. Yeah. Cool. Uh, by Samira Ahmed, who is an author that lives in Naperville and teaches high school social studies in her free time. Sweet. Caitlin is assigning the Amazon Prime show Carnival Row. Um,. And I am uh, apparently accidentally doubling down on my Scorsese flicks. Uh, I'm assigning Gangs of New York. Um, as extra bonus credit, we're also going to be talking, I'm sure, about Supergirl. Uh, and Martha recommends the storyline Agent of Liberty, which you said might not be super available. I, I think that aired, it either on the season that is currently airing or last season so if you don't have i know past seasons of supergirl are available on netflix i just don't know how current those are i see i see all right well uh join us in two weeks when we are going to be talking about immigrants and refugees uh until then please do your homework uh thanks again to austin and uh class dismissed Have fun editing this down to an hour, Pete. Oh, no, it's going to be an hour and a half at... It'll be an hour and a half, but, like, woof. <laughs>